all of us thinking more about our community and how what we do affects our, our people you know, around us and how we can help uh, each other out. Welcome back to the Taste of the Wind podcast where we talk about everything ethical and local food. This week I have an interview with Melissa Hemkin of Melissa Hoff Farm in Lander, Wyoming. I chose to interview Melissa this week because we just got our delivery of Heritage Rooster Chicks from Melissa through Eat Wyoming. They drove them across the state for me and dropped them off in my driveway. So I have them tucked into their brooder and they're happy and fluffy and super cute. And I wanted to share with you guys why I went through Melissa Hoff this year instead of a hatchery out of the Midwest like we have in the past. This is one of the longer podcast episodes I've done, and you'll probably hear Peter in the background a few times. Um, He goes everywhere and does everything with me, so. (laughs) Exhibit A. But, um, yeah, it is one of the longer episodes I've done. And that I guess that's just what happens when you get two poultry nerds in the same room. Fun fact, I was on the winning National Avian Bowl team in 4-H in high school. I got to compete at the state level and we won so we went to louisville kentucky and we won the national avian bowl competition so there's my inner nerd coming out but i hope you enjoy our total nerd session on poultry and the local food system here in wyoming and beyond so without further ado here's melissa hemkin of melissa hoff farm in lander wyoming so i'm melissa hemkin and i live near and I've lived here since uh, 2018, so about 15 years now. And I have Melissa Hoff uh, Hatchery, which is also um, has a, a farm component to it. But for the hatchery, I have pastured poultry of heritage flocks. And I started it because I um, previously had poultry in other places where I lived. And I, I wanted to start having chickens again here in Lander. And I ordered a box of chickens in and then... Most of them died in the mail, and in that event, I started, you know, talking about it to all my friends. I'm like, oh yeah, it happens all the time. This is ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. (laughs) But that's, uh, you know, if you live in Wyoming, you know, you don't pay for overnight shipping because you can't get overnight shipping. So why waste your money? (laughs) So it makes sense that the the mail's a little bit slower here in Wyoming because we're spread out and you know has to be shipped in a long way. So. I got the idea there of hatching my own chicks. I hadn't hatched chicks previously at the scale I currently am, but I was familiar with poultry. And I, um, my uh, family are farmers in Iowa, right near Murray McMurray Hatchery, about 30 miles away from McMurray. So I'm familiar with hatchery operations. A lot of people contract raise for McMurray. Uh, so it wasn't a total foreign thing of having, uh, I call myself a boutique hatchery. I'm not McMurray scale at all. I do not plan to be that size um but it is uh my little hatchery business has filled a niche here in wyoming for people who want healthy baby chicks that aren't uh, being shipped in and and either dying or coming really stressed and uh so that's been helpful for uh, the folks who are are purchasing the chicks and then also provided me a, a, a side income for the the poultry that i have and this year I started shipping nationally. So I'm now um, 
USDA National Poultry Improvement Program certified, which means I'm tested for avian influenza and uh, pilorum typhoid, and I work with the Wyoming Livestock Board. Chickens are officially classed as livestock in Wyoming, <laughs> so I'm not, the Wyoming Livestock Board does a lot more cattle and horses and sheep in the, the state, but I have been working with the state vet, Dr. Hazel, who's been fantastic, and her team to uh, test my poultry. And I do not ship live poultry outside of Wyoming because the mail's so slow, even though I'm health certified to do it, I just do hatching eggs. So okay. a lot of people who ha raise poultry are very interested in the breeds that I have, the heritage breeds, and they're looking for those hatching eggs for them to mostly put in their own incubators, but they also might have some broody hens of their own that they'll buy my eggs to bring in and get some new bloodlines for their chickens. So do those eggs ship better? Is there more of a buffer on those? Yes. So they, um, I ship on Mondays and I always send eggs that have been laid on Saturday and, and Sunday. And you can keep eggs and have them remain viable for hatching up to seven days. So most of the customers are getting them on Thursday and Friday. So that's within well within seven days. Uh, there's special foam egg shippers that you use to transport them. And then uh, I ship them fragile, perishable, and they um, uh, transport pretty pretty good that way for folks. Uh, so that is, even though this mail's a little slower here in Wyoming, it's still uh, possible to do. Yeah, better than the two-day, pretty much two, maybe three-day window you have with chicks to get them from yes. A to B. Yeah, you know, like the ones that I lost in the mail, I got them in 83 hours. So they'd been shipped, they'd been shipping for 83 hours. And they had been at the hatchery where that of origin for a little bit too after hatch for sexing and stuff. So they really needed food and water. Generally, a chick needs you know, food and water by 75 hours. And um, I know for sure they were in transit for 83 hours. So that it, that's why it's, it's difficult for baby chicks to come into the state. Yeah, and I, I have heard people discuss that um, there's some studies done that chicks hatched at a lower elevation and then brought to a higher elevation just struggle, uh, not necessarily at the beginning, but throughout their life because of the <laughs> elevation change. Have you heard anything okay. about that? I haven't. I should look more into that. I know for broilers, they don't do well over 5,000 feet, broiler hybrids. Uh, it really slows down their growth, but I, I haven't looked at, you know, the change, but that makes sense. You know, the pressure change <laughs> with altitude and baby chicks are fragile. They're just little footballs. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you know, they're getting, you know, moved really quickly to a different elevation. I could see how that impacted uh, them sure yeah that's interesting well thank you for that I um, you did mention that you raise heritage breeds would you mind explaining what kinds those are mm -hmm. so I have four different breeds I have a uh, Buckeye Dominique Sam Favreau and Blue Lace Red Wyandots and I selected them all because they do better in colder climates which we were talking about this winter good thing for this winter uh, they are also dual purpose for both eggs and meat. Um, so, you know, chickens, as with any type of animal, like a specialty breed them. Like the leghorns are extremely high egg producing chickens, but they're very small carcass size and they don't really do well for meat harvesting. You know, I mean, you can eat them, but they don't, they're not a very large chicken. 
It's more like a soup bird. <laughs> yeah. And so I wanted to have a, a heavier body chicken, and that was also good with egg laying. And so that's uh, the reason I selected my breed. So the Dominiques are the first ones that I got, and they're the first breed of record in the U.S. So I believe it was 1760 was the first written record of the Dominique hen, like wow. in New Hampshire or somewhere up in New England. <laughs> Uh, and then um, the Buckeyes are out of Ohio, and they're um, the only American-class breed developed by a, a woman. Her name is uh, Nettie Metcalf. She was unsatisfied with the chickens available in the late 1800s, so she bred her own. And she crossed them with game birds. So they're really good at free-ranging, and that's why I, I selected them for their free-ranging and foraging capability, as well as um, you know doing the, the carcass size and they have a peak home which is good for our cold climate and uh, egg producing they're a dark red chicken i get asked for rhode island red it's a lot because those are really well-known chickens and people are like oh i have rhode island reds in the past and i'm like well i don't have rhode island reds but i have buckeyes they're red <laughs> and they're like you should try the buckeyes <laughs> uh, so i often just because they're also red but they are are a good bird similar to rhode island reds but they don't have that big single comb which get frosted a bunch here definitely climate yeah uh the blue lace red wine dots and they're the laced wine dot i believe it's a silver lace wine dot has been around a long time they're out of new york and um blue laced reds is a new color variation there's a bunch of like golden laced and all these different colors of the wine dot chicken and blue laced reds is the newest color variation even to the point american poultry association has not officially recognized them as a color of the Wyandotte breed, uh, but they're really pretty and they come in a few different shades. And um, I picked them because that was what was available to me for some breeding stock, uh, but also I knew that people were really looking for that color because they're newer. And um, so the Wyandots and the Faberoles are what's most popular nationally for hatching eggs, and so I sell them most from those two breeds. And I think it's because Blue Lace Reds are a newer coloration. And then the um, Salmon Faberoles are French class breed, and they're uh, on the threatened list of the Livestock Conservancy. So I think that's why people are looking a lot for their hatching eggs. Um, they, they only have worldwide 5,000 officially registered of that breed. And they're originally out of France. They're developed to lay eggs in the winter for the Paris markets which is interesting because they're a very fancy chicken. <laughs> they have feathers yeah. on their feet and they have these puffed muffs and they're extremely cute. <laughs> and you want to think of them from like in an industry setting of being like laying eggs, a lot of eggs, but they do lay quite a bit of eggs in winter. That's why I selected them. Also, I wanted, uh, what I was thinking about doing four breeds, I wanted two more utilitarian breeds, which are the Dominiques and Buckeyes. They're a little more plainer, but they're very good at eggs and meat. <laughs> They're not fancy. And then I wanted two more pretty breeds, which are the blue laced red wine dots and the salmon Favorals for the folks who are have just a few hens in their backyard and they, they want the you know, the cutie cute ones. Uh, so yeah. I wanted to provide a variety to my customers so people could choose and, and most people, especially the folks who just have a small flock, will have a couple of each breed. They'll mm -hmm. they'll order chicks of each breed so they have eight or something like that so they can have yeah. some variety in that's great uh, so the uh, another unique thing about the Fabrols is they have five toes which is oh wow related 
to some of like the first chickens is that they, the first chickens developed had five toes and they still have those toes. So, you know, they're, they're kind of unique just because of uh, the way they're, they're bred. That's super interesting. I had no idea they had five toes. <laughs> yeah. You can't see them all the time because they have so many feathers on their feet. Like some yeah. of them are so fluffy. I don't think they can see to the side because their little muffs cover up their eyes. They're just poof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that maybe that helps keep them warm too. Warmer? It might be. Yeah. I like they don't get any frozen waddles because mm-hmm. uh, the yeah, little apples do have a, a single comb. And I have been uh, breeding them to have a smaller cone than breed standard, uh, which I do tell my customers. So I there's it's called the standard of perfection. If you've done any livestock judging, you know there's a confirmation for horses, an ideal confirmation for a cow, uh, and chickens are the same. But it's called the standard of perfection, and it lists exactly what their tail set should be, and how many toes they should have. <laughs> and uh, coloration as well as cone size. And the Fabrils are supposed to have a, a larger single comb, and I've been selecting mine to have a smaller comb for a Wyoming climate so they don't suffer as much frostbite here. So I do let my customers know that because if they're going to show the chickens, uh, they would get uh, dinged for not having a big single comb on them. Other than that, I, I do the other three breeds according to the, the standard of perfection. Okay. Well, they'll probably end up with a smaller comb in Wyoming anyways. <laughs> it's so cold. Yeah. Well, my two roosters, uh, they lost all their spikes in the, the Faberol roosters. I, you know, I don't have heated coops, so several days of negative 20s just took off their spikes. It's hard on them, yeah. We had a lot of girls who lost their combs this year, too, but we have we inherited some brown leghorns a couple years ago, and we're kind of phasing those girls out and some of the older ones they struggled and they kind of lost the tips of their combs this year yeah it's a bummer yeah thankfully they um they survived it they uh are doing well but it, you feel bad for them going around with their you know their black stubs on and they, yeah <laughs> now they've sloughed, sloughed it all off and you can see that they they're holding their heads a little higher they feel better <laughs> yeah <laughs> Spring's coming, I promise. Yeah, they're, they're trying to crow it in. They're trying. <laughs> the chickens are feeling it too. Yeah. So where did you source your breeding stock from? Is it a wide variety of sources or do you have one main For place? all the breeds, I, I did a, done a mix of, um, <laughs> you know, poultry fanciers can be snob, just as snobby as horse people. And I'm a horse person too. And like, I <laughs> totally understand. I'm like, oh, I'm double crazy maybe horse person and a chicken person uh, <laughs> there's this they call it hatchery stock and kind of like oh they poo poo hatchery stock and i've sourced mine from a, a combination of hatchery stock and then private breeders and then um i've been identifying what needs improvement on my chickens and looking more to private breeders to fulfill that for instance my dominiques have don't quite have as upright of a tail angle as they should and when i went to visit a family in iowa last fall i picked up uh, some new breeding roosters from a private breeder and he's a he shows dominique's cat coming in here he shows dominique's so i picked up uh, two of his roosters and and brought them back to bring in a higher tail set and some new genetics into my dominique flock 
and I've been doing that for two breeds a year. So last year, I um, got I shipped in some wine dots from a Montana private breeder, and got some nice genetics from that breeder, and they also show, which is just I don't plan to show, but some of my customers show, and if you're showing, people are just more cognizant of the standard of perfection because they're taking their animal and having someone you know tell them exactly what's correct about it and what's not correct <laughs> so they've, they've they they think about it a little bit more and how they they breed uh, so that's why i've identified some of um, private breeders to bring in those genetics i had shipped in some hatching eggs for the dominiques from a guy out of Washington State who's been winning most of the shows, uh, but unfortunately they were damaged in the mail. We were talking about shipping hatching eggs earlier. His, um, he didn't label them ha uh, fragile or perishable, and they got a little rough up on the mail. So I would like to try again to get some of his genetics. He's got like the, the top poultry according to all the shows in the U.S. right now, so I'd love to get well. some more. You look at his chickens, and you're like, oh, yeah, it looks like the picture in the Standard of Perfection book. So, <laughs> yeah. Because I look well, at it, and I'm like, oh, I'm kind of there. I'm getting closer. <laughs> uh, so something to keep striving for. And, and when I select my replacement poet, I do uh, look at them and evaluate them according to that. And then I, every year I look at my older hens, and my, I, I take out a few. Even if they're just one-year-old, I might go, okay. I have a pullet that's better than you, so I'll, um, I often sell them um, into uh, egg-laying flocks because they're still laying great. They're in full lay, but I just don't want to breed them. And so folks, that's helped some folks. Um, generally, that's folks, people around Lander will get those hens and, and add them to their flocks. So uh, gradually, awesome. maybe soon I'll be matching the, the picture in the standard of perfection. We're not quite there yet. <laughs> he loves Zoom meetings. So. Oh, yeah. He can watch me. And, uh, Yes. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so is the poultry show scene pretty hopping in this part of the nation or is it mostly not, not in Wyoming <laughs> yeah I the front range has quite a few but really in Wyoming it's just great shows and okay. um, there's no state level shows that I even know about and uh, Dr. Hazel with Lyman, Lyman Livestock Board, she she doesn't do any of those either. And she ca came from uh, other states uh, and work experiences that have a much bigger poultry scene. So she's been great to work with because she understands uh, poultry. But people do show for 4-H, they'll show chickens here. Yeah, that's great. I've seen some of the county fairs where the kids have all their chickens in the, yeah. in the exhibition cages. It's pretty neat. But I, I, my, my understanding of the standard is that it's also developed to promote health of the birds. It's not just for show. It's, it's like their legs need to be structurally correct and things like that to promote health of the breed as well. Yeah, and it has a lot to do with um, the egg side of it too. So you know, the wider pelvis chickens generally have larger eggs. Um, and there's also certain things that will have them come into lay more quickly that you can breed for so that they mm -hmm. are ovulating sooner. And yeah, there's oh, a lot of finer points. And those are, that's the nice thing about having those standards developed because they were 
developed more for like you know if you think about the fact chickens only have two legs if they were too front heavy you know they tip over kind of like the broiler hybrids do because they grow so fast yep (laughs) we do need to have you know you think about the if oh tail set is like such a fine you think oh who cares how your tail is but hey if it was in the wrong spot you know it might unbalance chicken and then they you know might uh not be able to move as correctly so it does have all have purpose there is some finer points of coloration that you're like oh then we have to worry about uh that you're like what who cares if they're too dark red (laughs) yeah or Um, their earlobes are slightly different shade (laughs) yeah yeah there's some of those finer points and like okay so a lot of what i'm looking at because i have only done you know in my third year and it takes a while to read to all of that I've been looking at more the production side of the standards, which is the eggs, uh, wider pelvises, um, thinking more about comb size because that's uncomfortable for the chicken to have a frozen head for half the winter. And, um, and then how I can bring in some different bloodlines that match certain things. So for instance, the Dominique roosters I picked up out of, um, they're out of Leon, Iowa. So I call them the Leons, <laughs> the Leon. <laughs> they, um, not only do they have this more accurate tail set, they're also a bigger body Dominique. And my Dominiques are on the small side, so I anticipate that they'll bring in some more uh, carcass size for the chicken. Uh, one thing that I do is, so when you're hatching chicks, there's generally a 50-50 gender split where, you know, you got two eggs, one's a female and one becomes a male. And the big hatcheries, they, they have to euthanize all those rooster chicks because there's just so many roosters. And I think that they do have a purpose in our, our food system and creating resilient food systems. And that's one nice thing to have a dual person purpose chicken so that the rooster does get large enough that you can harvest them for a good amount of meat. Uh, but we do want to think about how they are a bigger body chicken. So my Dominique roosters are some of the smaller that I'm harvesting and I see them all the way to harvest because I keep the rooster chicks and and raise them on pasture for harvest so I can evaluate them whereas the buckeye roosters are um, some of the fill out the most quickly and are the largest that I have so I'd love to get the Dominique carcass size a little bigger now that benefits the hens because if the bigger bodied hen was going to lay a larger egg and also benefits the meat production side of it because the larger rooster will will be able to yield more chicken meat. Uh, so that is a, a goal for my Dominiques to get them a little bit bigger. Uh, and that is within standard. They're a little bit small for the Dominique standard. Uh, the Favreau standard, they're an interesting breed. The hens and the roosters are very different. Uh, for one thing, they're different colors, completely different colors. Wow. <laughs> but also, the um, hens are smaller, and the roosters are are about double their body weight. Uh, so there's quite a difference naturally within that breed of weight. And um, you could pr- get the hens a little bit larger, uh, but the roosters are already a nice weight for harvesting. Okay. Cool. That's really interesting. It's cool how there's so many different dynamics to these four breeds that you're raising. It's a lot yeah. to keep track of. And I'm, I'm adding a fifth breed, and I'm like, oh, maybe I should because it's another one to track, right? I had, you learn about it, and I've never had this breed before. I'm adding partridge, partridge chanteclers. Okay. But they're a Canadian breed, 
they have their highest rate of lay is in the winter. One thing I think for either keeping a, a family in eggs, like you're just raising chickens to have eggs for yourself, or to sell eggs, is you. I think you need a mix of breeds to have eggs all year round because it's hard to have the perfect chicken that can lay when it's 90 degrees out and can lay when it's negative 20. <laughs> like that's, yeah. That's a huge extreme for them to continue production of eggs. Uh, so I think it's nice to have a, a mix of breeds that are, are good in different environments. And so the, the Chanteclers are, are really good in the winter. And um, I also like the fact that they're a dual purpose. They have good meat. Um, they have a smaller comb size. They're also a heritage they um, originally developed as a white bird, and then someone realized, I forget his name, up in Canada, that having a white bird out foraging in a pasture was a really bad idea, because the hawk would just come <laughs> in and go, oh. So he was like, I'm gonna make them brown and camouflaged, and they're kind of partridge colored. And I, huh? I need to do more research on the, the breed and, and learn the history of what he bred into them to make them a different color. Mm-hmm. But they became known as the partridge chanteclers because they're they're um, different. They're kind of a, a brown pattern. They look kind of like the Dominiques in that they're they have a barred pattern, but it's brown and black. Uh, so they'd be good in a, a forage, um, free range setting, or out in pasture, like even how I run them in, in net pens out on pasture, because they're not stark white. Awesome. That makes a lot of sense. It's, it's neat because I'm sure in the large industry where birds are kept indoors, um, these factors aren't even relevant because they don't have to worry about aerial predators. They don't have to worry about camouflage or foraging ability. So it's neat how your production model is so tied to place and you're kind of developing your own landrace version of these breeds for the traits that you need in lander. And that's, that's one of the reasons why um, we're gonna try out your birds this year because we've been sourcing through the mail. We've had the same struggles you're talking about. <laughs> and then when our birds get out on pasture, they just, some of the breeds fall short because it, they weren't developed in this setting at all, not even close. So um, we're really excited to see how these heritage breeds do and how they taste. and. Our customers are excited too. I announced this and they were like, oh yeah, this is so great. So, oh good, so, good, glad to hear that. Yeah, and it's, that's what, they were excited to be able to support two local businesses. Um, two local businesses instead of just one local business and one far away business. So mm-hmm. uh, if I would like to transition towards that a little bit, how what you're doing plays into our local food system here in Wyoming. Yeah, I think, well, for one thing, having healthier chicks to, to begin with is a good start. Yeah. <laughs> of um, having a, a good a chicken. But I think also it brings in uh, kind of looking at you know, Wyoming is, we're an interesting state in that <laughs> we can't feed ourselves very well right now. You know, we have a lot of cows. <laughs> Um, but then they also, most of them aren't processed or finished here in the state. They go, you know, to Colorado Front Range or Kansas or Nebraska. And then we get the meat back in a, in a processed form. 
And I think, yeah, you're not going to change that immediately, but starting to look at how we can have our businesses work together um, for Wyoming. Like my, my boutique hatchery, yes, I sell hatching eggs nationally, but I'm not going to change the U.S. food system. <laughs> but I can potentially do that for my community and for Wyoming by having um, more folks in Wyoming having healthy hens in their flocks because they're not stressed and they're also bred to be suitable to our climate um, so that they're producing throughout the year and then having you know the rooster chicks be raised for meat here as well um, can also bring in the, the meat and eggs part of it and so I think there is potential for the um, you know the, the farm and ranch business of Wyoming to do it for us you know there's only half a million of us in Wyoming <laughs> and yes people eat a lot of chicken uh, but I think and a lot of eggs but I think we could use more small flocks of meat birds and um, egg layers you know with the egg shortage we saw this winter yeah. <laughs> everyone was looking for eggs Safeway and Walmart didn't even have eggs they weren't even able to ship them in from wherever yeah uh, to get them from and I think it would be great if more people had 30 lane hens. Uh, you know, they, I do not want to be big enough to even supply Lander, which is 7,000 people, <laughs> with eggs every day. That's a lot of eggs. I don't want that many chickens. Yeah. Uh, but if we had more people, you know, with 30 to 50 hens and, um, you, know, you know, back in the old days, that's how we did it, right? Everyone had their own hens and, and a few in their backyard. And, and we fed ourselves just fine. It didn't matter if a semi blew over on I-80 or if the road was closed or if there was a global pandemic because our food was uh, more, re more regional and more local scaled. And, you know, you can argue that it's less efficient that way, it's more expensive, but it is more resilient and it's more sustainable. Uh, so I think that's where we need to balance it because you know, with the inflation and recession that keeps kind of dragging on in our U.S. economy, you know, we don't have, each of us don't have more cash in our wallet to pay yeah. more for our food to support our local farmer and rancher, um, but we, we need the food. And so that's, we're kind of at right now in Wyoming and I think other places of the U.S. We're kind of in that contention point of people not having more income, but the higher costs of food uh, going up at the same time. So looking at how we can navigate that, I think is important um, for everyone. And one thing that I've done for my business is I'm fairly close to Jackson and I sell at the Jackson farmers markets and I also sell online in Jackson. And that's a wealthier community there. And most of that wealth is global. <laughs> you know, the people who live there have uh, a, vast amount of investments um, in companies all over the place and then they they live in, in Jackson because they enjoy that community and they also know the value of quality and they have the extra funding to pay for it uh, mm -hmm. and then so I so I have you know one price list that I use for the Jackson community and then I have a, another one for people that just stop by my house which are my neighbors who are not making <laughs> the amount of money that you know, pe people who generally live in Jackson have. Uh, they don't have that extra cash on hand. 
And so I think that's one way that small businesses can balance it is looking at, you know, where they could um, bring in some financial sustainability for the business, but at the same time make uh, it affordable for their neighbors. Yeah. And, and one, I remember, well, I went to your talk at the Harvest Symposium and you were also talking about how you're sourcing, or at least in the process of sourcing your feed for your chickens more locally. I think that's one piece that people don't quite have their head wrapped around when they decide to raise their own flock of chickens is where they're going to get the feed for those chickens and how far away is that feed coming from? <laughs> so. Yeah, and um, I actually just shipped in a bunch of feed from Pennsylvania and Oregon. So I had been more local than I am at the moment. Um, but the base corn and oats is able to get from Fremont County farmers, which I, I think is important. But at the same time, we are, our economies, it doesn't matter if it's food or what it is, are so globally linked. And a, a lot of the farmers in Fremont County sell to cores. And with the Ukraine-Russian conflict, grain prices have been much higher uh, for the last year. And so when I'm purchasing corn and oats from them, I'm having to purchase it at the same price that Coors pays, which they're getting it for beer. <laughs> but yeah. at the same time, like a farmer, they're having to make their business decisions and go, oh, we can get more money pay- selling to Coors. And Melissa's just her little chicken flock over there. <laughs> yeah. um, and that's more of the community mindedness of them thinking about uh, their financial sustainability and saving me you know, a few tons and thinking about what I can afford with my poultry business and then selling the rest at international market value to cores. And that's, again, all of us thinking more about our community and how what we do affects our, our people, you know, around us and how we can help uh, each other out. And what I, I just shipped in is one thing I'm doing really looking at this year is nutrition. Um, and for poultry, it's really important that the soybeans be roasted. So I was purchasing local soybeans, but there's not a roaster here. Uh, so I was working with a poultry nutrition consultant, and uh, when you roast it, there's something unlocked in the, the soybean that's important to chickens' uh, nutrition. And so I chose to ship that in to see how beneficial that is, how much my production goes up. You know, does, do, do my hens lay more eggs? Do I have, uh, you know, faster rate of gain on my rooster meat birds from it? And I would love to see, you know, that creates another business opportunity perhaps for somebody else who they could buy a roaster and the the soybeans for me. You know, I've purchased 4,000 pounds of roasted soybeans, Mm -hmm. uh, but there were potentially they could do it for other poultry people in the state as well. Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm going to test it and then, I might be uh, encouraging some people <laughs> to think about getting a roaster. Another thing I needed was a felpa meal, and I ended up, I had to ship in a felpa meal. There's a Wyoming Hay Cube company here in Fremont County, but they only have a cube machine for a felpa. They don't have a pelletizer, and I can't run the cubes through a feed grinder. And so I um, chose to, I did call hey, Wyoming Hay Cubes and, and at this time, they don't have the machinery to do it. So I chose now to, to ship it in, but I hope, hope in the future that 
perhaps they want to buy the pelletizer for the hay, and then that's local hay, a local company processing it, and then I buy yeah. it. It would be fantastic. We have really good hay here. It doesn't make sense for me to ship in and help the mail. We just need the machine to, you know, process it into something to put into feed. Uh, so that's, again, as more people are, are thinking about having poultry in Wyoming and uh, thinking about proper nutrition, then you know, we can work together and go to someone, hey, we have this many people who buy this much feed. Would you invest in something for us? And we will commit to buy the feed from you. And that's, again, that the kind of power of community and the power of ourselves for our economy. Definitely. It sounds like, to me anyway, the, the bottleneck in Wyoming and why we send so many of our raw products out of state to be processed is that we don't have the infrastructure to process the things we produce. So we sell them at bottom dollar to someone else and then they get all the profit from that last or last couple steps and then sell us our own product back at a premium. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, if we even get it, right? Like they're, they're yeah. going to prioritize Denver and Salt Lake before they ship stuff to Wyoming most of the yeah. time. Uh, so that is, um, and I think as more people look, you know, inward is maybe a way to put it, you know, within Wyoming, I'm like, oh, what, what do we need in Wyoming? Oh, this is going on. Well, that could be my business. And, um, that's what I enjoy. So I also work part-time for Central Wyoming College. And one of the big things they look at is entrepreneurship. Recognizing that most businesses in Wyoming are small. They only, you know, like a big business in Wyoming is going to maybe employ 100 people. Um, and that's probably going to be more like state-level agencies or, or the Forest Service or things like that. But most yeah. of the businesses here are small and they have, you know, two to five employees. So the college really recognizes that for their their graduates to uh, it, you know thrive here and have jobs here, they're probably going to have to create their own business and have the skills to be an entrepreneur and, and do startups and see business opportunities. And so that in every you know it's not just the business classes; it's also the agriculture classes and culinary that CWC is encouraging their students to think about um, entrepreneurship and business startups and how they can have um, their own business here in Wyoming, which I think is important for the um, strength of young people staying here. I just was looking at some stats for Wyoming and for, well, for Fremont County, 46% of high school graduates out migrate from County and they go somewhere else and I grew up in a very rural area of Iowa my hometown 300 people and I also left that town when I graduated so did I I left my and, hometown too <laughs> and I haven't been back and now I go to visit I go to visit uh and to and, pick up chickens <laughs> and, uh, yeah exactly now I'm bringing my economic power back with me to buy chickens <laughs> uh, no my brother did stay and he he farms with my dad and he and his family live right there uh, but there's not even a gas station in my hometown. And wow. stops open a couple mornings a week. It's very much uh, not a lot of job opportunity in that particular town. Uh, I think most towns in Fremont County actually have more available than where I grew up in Iowa. Um, but that is, I, I see a little bit of a, a, a 
a resurgence of that in the Iowa rural communities too, because I still have a lot of connections there. Uh, being, having remote jobs, which is much more prevalent now after the pandemic, has brought in a lot of people into those rural communities in Iowa because they're like, oh, we can still have that job and we can live here. And I see that quite a bit here in Lander. Um, I've seen quite a few folks move into Lander from that as well. Yeah. It's an interesting dynamic going on across the U.S. with with I Zoom. Think, <laughs> yeah. yeah, as we're on Zoom here and on other sides yeah. of the state. Uh, yeah, it's um, it definitely is a way to connect us more and do work more. But I think at the same time, we it's important to think of how to really dig in and connect to our community. So say we work remotely for uh, some global company and we live in Lander, but how do we still connect and help the, the small businesses, the main street businesses? And, and I think a lot of that comes from thinking about food. I, uh, food is one of the things I, that everyone needs. We all eat, <laughs> regardless of what we think about politics or how to handle a pandemic. Uh, that was very divisive, I know, for a lot of people of yeah. infectious disease, how we're going to handle it. Uh, we are all eating, and I think that is a way for us to really how we interact with our community or our values and what food that we source and what we we eat and putting some more thought into that. And I think it's an economic driver too. So you know, folks with remote jobs, you know, they're bringing a lot of income into the communities. And then if they took that income and they were able to um, put most of it into purchasing locally sourced food, that would be fantastic. <laughs> um, yeah. It was a great way to uh, bring in a lot of extra cash into a town. Yeah, which is something Wyoming has struggled with in the past. So it's pretty neat. I, it, yeah. It's cool to hear someone talk about it as an opportunity because I've definitely heard the opposite of that coin, the opposite side of that coin where people are like, oh, they're not paying taxes in another state where their business is based and they're coming here and they're staying for only the nice part of the year and blah, blah, blah. But it's cool because there's an opportunity to it as well. Yeah, and I see that a lot of the um, educational piece of making sure that, you know, me as a, well, I'm not in hatching, I sell, sell hatch season, I sell table eggs, like me making sure I connect with those people. And, mm-hmm. and everyone likes convenience. And that's one of the things I'm, I'm trying to be balance in my own business. I don't have the time to run an egg route and go deliver eggs door to door. You know, that yeah. was the thing along with the milkman, you know, years ago. And I just don't have the availability to do it. Even here in Lander, I live five miles out from Lander. I'm fairly close to town, but I just don't have the, capability within my my day to go do that and then also to have the um, income from the eggs cover my labor and mileage and fuels really expensive yes <laughs> uh, so that has been something I've been looking at is how do I make it really convenient for people to purchase you know my, my local food items without also being financially sustainable as a business so um, you know, farmers markets are, are one way and online ordering is another way, but then how do they, where do they pick it up at? Um, I'm not always home for them to stop by my house. Right now my driveway is not plowed out from the 20 inches of snow that just came. And I was supposed to have a customer pick up baby chicks yesterday. I told her I'm not plowed out yet. 
you know, the baby chicks are my brooder. They're all tucked in. They're great. Like, we're going to have to do it later. Uh, so, you know, there's uh, both weather and then, you know, perceived barriers to just driving out to someone's house when they live in the, the countryside. I previously lived in New England, and uh, farm stands are very popular form of purchasing local food there. And, you, they, you know, you set up at the end of your driveway and, and people stop by. But in New England, the communities are much um, closer together. And so people are very, like, you're driving home from work and they pass the farm stand. Yeah, they'll stop and, and pick up food on their way home from work. Whereas not many people drive past the end of my driveway, which is over a quarter mile long, <laughs> to go get home from work. Uh, so we're just at a different scale. And that's what excites me about thinking about market infrastructure, which I work with the college on, CWC supporting some different ways of selling local foods because I can see that as one of the main barriers for people with local food businesses is the distances we have to travel here to get to people or get into town because um, the customers also are you know working busy jobs and have kids going to soccer and <laughs> so they, they don't have as much time to meet up with you somewhere as well uh, so I think that's one of the barriers and challenges there, but there's also a lot of opportunities with the Wyoming Food Freedom Act, like the Fremont Local Market opened in Riverton that I generally describe it as a local food consignment store. So mm -hmm. they have a designated agent there and then local food products are for sale and someone can stop in there, you know, five days a week and pick up just like any normal grocery store. And I think that model is something that we could use more of around the state to not only assist the farmers and ranchers growing and raising local foods, but also assist the customers and make it uh, convenient for them. You know, traditionally farmers markets are on Saturday morning, but that's also a time that a lot of people are mowing their lawn or the kids with soccer, or, you know, whatever they're doing, or some people work weekends and they're not able to get into that farmer's market. So I think um, we can use our, our technology, like online ordering and websites and you know, point-of-sale systems, and really use it for our benefit. Awesome. That's really cool. It's, it's nice to hear how all that's kind of coming together. I hear about it at the national level where they're talking about CSAs and farmers markets as focal points, but trying to build that regional food accessibility so when we do have something like a pandemic, we aren't just out <laughs> yeah which is what happened here and even just this um this winter uh there was well wild lander didn't have any eggs uh, but then they only allowed it was like going back to the tp you know they only allowed one dozen eggs per person and jackson was the same way i was over in jackson at the farmer's market and uh those it has surprised me that jackson was that way because they are prioritized a little bit higher on the food supply chain and they were rationing at the Albertsons eggs, you only could get wow. one dozen per person. And I was at the farmer's market and I didn't have eggs because it was negative 20 in Lander and my hens weren't laying. <laughs> and that's one of the reason I was looking at um, and, and purchased Chanteclers. I was like, I need a, a, a better winter egg layer if we continue to have winters like this. Now, with the weather variances we've been having, you know, the next one could be really balmy and be 60s, who knows, but. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah who knows 
And then I'll need some of those leg horns. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You can't. You can try. Yeah. <laughs> that's all we can do. I, you know, that's so, uh, one reason, you know, you, I think confined animal feeding operations get a bad rap a lot. Um, but that's one of the reasons animals were moved indoors is because they're in a very temperature controlled environment that's optimal to their health and to their production and then you know weather be damned you don't care what it's doing you can probably keep the animal at you know a good temperature for them whereas my poultry are on unheated coops and they're going you know up and down to whatever the weather is is doing yeah and for things like disease it minimizes i mean to an extent it minimizes exposure to disease from the outside, but once it gets inside those larger confinement situations, it's pretty bad. <laughs> yeah, that's one of the reasons the egg shortage was created was last summer, the avian influenza caused uh, so many laying hens to be euthanized in the U.S. Uh, because they're regularly tested like I am for avian influenza, which my flock is. They're under the same USDA health certificate. But if they had one chicken show positive, they would have to euthanize all million hens in that one barn. And then they were just gone. Uh, and our food supply, so much of it is stored. It didn't hit us right away because there's so much eggs, so many eggs in storage to go around the U.S. to all the different you know, people eating eggs everywhere. Uh, so... And then the holidays hit, which everyone bakes more at <laughs> Thanksgiving yeah. and Christmas. Lots of baking. And then all of a sudden it wiped out all the reserves of eggs. And so that's why I primarily in January it was like, oh, all of a sudden there's no eggs. Uh, so that is, you know, there's benefits to the confined animal feeding operations for the health of the animal and optimal production. But there's also downsides for that disease risk. Uh, one of the reasons I think so far my poultry have not had avian influenza in all their testing is because they're out on pasture. Uh, so AI is respiratory based. So a chicken can cough and then they give it to the next chicken. But it's very windy here in Wyoming. And uh, so mine are out on pasture and that wind's just taking that snot you know, <laughs> and taking it somewhere else. And also sun kills it. So my chickens are out uh, tromping through the snow um, in fresh air and they just stay healthier because that's a natural immunity. The sun sun strength, which I'm at 5,400 feet, is killing all the diseases, and then anything that's left, the wind is blowing away. Uh, so even though I do have uh, carriers of avian influenza that come through, for instance, geese, sandhill cranes, um, great horned owls, they have all known carriers of avian influenza, and they're also on my pastures. I haven't had thus far any disease transmission that's noticeable in the poultry when I test which um, I tested in January and I just tested last week so it's every couple months uh, they get oral swab their trachea actually how they're tested for avian influenza because it is respiratory it is um, generally up in their um, trachea so I've been learning new things when I with the testing <laughs> yeah where do you send those tests into there's a lab in Laramie that runs them. And they, the vet uh, lab here? Yes, they work with the mom and livestock board. Uh, oh. and they uh, run the, the test. So that's nice. It gets done in state. Um, 
get a pretty quick response on it. Yeah, it's probably quicker turnaround for shipping samples and things like that too. Yeah, because the samples are only viable for so many days on the cotton swab that we use. And um, I forget how many days it is. I think it's like three days or something. Wow. Well, that's neat. Even your testing for your flock health is kept local. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so what would you say to someone who wanted to, if they were looking for more local sources in, in the area of Wyoming and maybe even the Intermountain West, where should they start looking? No, I think the farmers markets remain a really good place to just go and meet people and see who's in the area. And then you can likely go, oh, you sell online or you sell on that CSA or, you know, you're part of the Wyoming local food hub. Oh, cool. And there's other ways I can purchase from you. Uh, and but not everyone at the farmer's market does online ordering. So that's a good way to just kind of get started and see who's in the area. Uh, mm-hmm. And then also doing like eatwyoming.com, which is a statewide website, um, looking to see who's on there and selling is also folks across the the state of wyoming one thing i've noticed is people are doing local foods don't always have their own website so a google search perhaps is not going to be as as you'd want it to be but most of them are on social media (laughs) so even just going on to facebook or instagram and you know searching local food to you know your area whether you're in Colorado Springs or Laramie or Lander could uh, probably also kind of pull in a a bunch of people that you uh, didn't know about. So that's a good reason as a producer to tag your posts and things, Laramie local food or Riverton local food, things like that. So people, yeah, like put, put a place in there. And I've, I've even done that when I've tried to get a hold of some people, like some beef ranchers that are selling local beef. Um, I'll go to their, I don't have their email or phone number and I'm trying to find it. We all have cell phones. We don't have landlines and they're hard to track down phone numbers sometimes. And so then <laughs> I on their Facebook page and they don't have even an email on their Facebook page. And then I'm having to Facebook message them, which is a way to connect with them. But I'm like, Hey, you might want to put, if you don't have a website, put your email. And I fully understand you might not want your cell phone number on there, <laughs> but you know, some way for folks to easily connect with you and be findable. Because uh, they are, are probably looking online um, to search for you if they're not going to the farmer's market. And for instance, I don't sell very often at the Lander Farmer's Markets because I sell the Jackson Farmer's Markets. But I do sell eggs locally here, uh, but it's maybe you wouldn't meet me going to the Lander Farmer's Market. So that's more on me to make sure folks are aware that I'm here and I do sell, but I don't go to the farmer's market you know that's the other thing of that as a producer you need to make most farmers markets are at the same time right which one are you going to go to yeah (laughs) so i'm often in jackson on saturday i'm not in lander (laughs) and that has been the reason i i don't go to the lander uh, farmers markets though here in lander we're looking at opening a midweek market we don't currently have one and so that would be uh, something that i would be a little more able to attend Um, so whether you're a customer looking to purchase local food, you know, kind of see if there's a midweek market and there's a weekend market because you might meet different farmers and ranchers at those because they're balancing it. And then if you're selling local food, you know, think about how you want to balance which markets you 
your all ten. Yeah, a midweek market would be fantastic because that I'm often hitting the grocery store Wednesday night because I didn't get everything I needed on the weekend. <laughs> so that's a that's a cool idea. Does Laramie have a midweek market? We don't. Um, we have a Friday market in the summer. Okay. We used to have another one. I believe it was Thursdays at a different location, but it just got to be too small, so it wasn't worth doing anymore. I think. But mm-hmm. the, our Friday downtown market's pretty strong, I, I believe. So mm-hmm. that's nice. And Cheyenne has a winter market too that a lot of our producers go over to. But okay. it's a year like this, it would have been impossible to get over there a lot of the time because the interstate's been closed so often so yeah yeah and that has you know the closed roads that not only affects the local food producer but then the shipments outside and i think that's why it's important for people who've never taken the time to purchase local food for them to think about doing it more because the more they do it the more of us raising and growing local food there will be because as we all know, money talks, right? If there's more business opportunity there and you know, people will expand, they'll get more hens, they'll, they'll raise more meat birds, they'll add more dairy goats, and or maybe someone will start that new business and, and then also we have more farmers and ranchers, and, uh, but they have to see that the community members are gonna purchase that food for that to happen. So there's a there's a there's a very close knit relationship there between people. Yeah, definitely. I think a lot of this comes down to relationships. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so as far as your products, where can we go other than the Jackson Farmers Market to find those? Yeah, I sell on EatWyoming.com, which is the statewide uh, virtual farmers market. It's often called. I also sell through my personal business website, which is melissahop.com. I often keep that website oriented more towards live poultry and hatching eggs, but I do have, like right now, I have some pastured heritage chicken listed, uh, packaged okay. chicken. And occasionally I'll, I'll list some other items on there. Yeah, I I've seen garlic on there. and um, Yeah, but I also grow garlic. I, grow, I sell most of my garlic wholesale, so I don't always have it listed for retail online ordering by individual customers. Uh, but I do, um, around Lander, if you know I have garlic, you can buy it. <laughs> but uh, for me, uh, as for, for my baby chicks, I, I don't have a minimum order. You know, most hatcheries have a minimum order because they're shipping them across the U.S. And they mm-hmm. need enough box to keep the chicks warm. So often that's why you'll see like a minimum six order from a big hatchery. I don't have a minimum. I wouldn't recommend someone buy one chick, but there's a lot of people who buy two. And yeah. um, because I'm not shipping through the postal service, I, I can do that because I don't have to worry about enough in the box. Um, doing that many individually uh, takes more time. Like one person buys two chicks and another person buys 50. <laughs> it's the same yeah. amount of time talking with the customer. And so I've chosen to be like, that's, uh, I think it's a service to the community because some people don't want six chicks. They might have a backyard coop that only can fit four. <laughs> Something like yeah. that. Uh, but I've chosen as a business to sell my garlic wholesale and not do it in individual retail orders. And so 
Uh, most of it was sold by Mr. D's Food Center in Lanterville. Uh, and then several restaurants in Jackson also purchased that garlic. Um, wow. Other products are available. The Slow Food in the Tetons has a virtual market. Uh, Jackson, uh, I that online website. And I did, I heard that you do experiences on your farm as well. Yes, uh, this is the first year I'll be hosting uh, farm stays. And I've chosen to do it. I, it's called the Vanley app. It's because I don't have a Airbnb cabin or anything. Maybe in the future, but that takes some investment money. <laughs> uh, but I do have a spot that you can park an RV and you can plug in and you put your hose to the hydrant. Yeah. Uh, so that is what I've chosen to uh, start with is offering that basically kind of a camping spot uh, as a unique place to uh, stop in. And, all across Wyoming, a lot of people are, are traveling through, generally going to the parks, which I'm three hours from the south gate of Yellowstone. Uh, but they, they see they need a place to stop on the, the way. So this year is my first um, year of, of hosting people, and it'll be interesting to see how it goes. You know, there's definitely a lot of campsites up Sinks Canyon, which is very beautiful, the Southside Lander. <laughs> but mm -hmm. if folks wanted, you know, I have internet, I have a washing machine. <laughs> I have cell phone service, there's not in Sinks. Um, you know, people wanted, like, yeah, they've spent a few nights and days in the woods in Yellowstone, and, and now they would like, you know, just a place to stop and, and rest and go eat at the restaurant and then, you know, look at my chickens. <laughs> that yeah. is a, yeah. a, a fun a stopover for for them on their vacation can they buy your products while they're there oh yeah definitely yeah so they can um, stay at the place where their breakfast was raised yeah exactly <laughs> yeah they could get some eggs fry them up in their camper uh one thing lander has a lot of coming a lot of people coming through is people in camper vans because it's a huge rock climbing area so a okay. lot of rock come through it's an internationally known rock climbing area there's an international climbers festival in july wow. and a lot of those people live out of their van they're the rock climbers they travel just to rock climb uh so that was another opportunity i saw those people they live out of their van all the time uh and they might want to be a little closer to amenities like a shower <laughs> yeah uh, uh, just for a couple nights and before they go off to rock climb somewhere else that's awesome well on the topic of your farm how did you come up with the name melissa Hoff? that is it's german well my my first name's not german melissa but hoff is german for farm so in german that would be melissa's farm and in thinking of my business name my last name is german and no one can spell it very few people can spell it <laughs> and most people put a p and an i in it and i was like someone's trying to google my last name they're not gonna get find me because it's so hard to spell they're not gonna have it spelled right so traditionally in germany i would it would be hemkenhoff my last name and then the german word for far uh but i was thinking through about the fact no one could spell the last name and i was like oh how about melissa hoff most people spell melissa and then yeah uh has a, a ring to it uh now though <laughs> a lot of people think my last name is hoffs because they yeah. Hear, oh, you know Melissa Hoff, and they're like, "Oh, you're Melissa. Oh, you're in last 
last name. No, no, my last name's not off. My last name's Henry. Everyone's <laughs> confused, uh, but that's okay. It's fun. <laughs> they remember it. That's the that's the important. Yeah, exactly. Part. Like they just remember <laughs> Melissa, and then we'll be be okay. And they can spell off, so it's fine. Um, you have a YouTube channel. You have an Instagram. How can people stay up to date with what you're doing on Melissa Hoffs? I update Facebook and Instagram probably most frequently, and uh, I enjoy posting in there. I have a journalism background. I do used to do a lot of photography and writing for magazines, so it's the storytelling part. Um, some people really dislike social media. I like the storytelling and how you can do multimedia and do little videos. And I, I worked in print magazines a long time, and there's no video in print. <laughs> Uh, so I enjoy the process of storytelling, and I, I do post pr- fairly frequently on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, YouTube, I generally just do some more um, how-to videos when I have time, uh, and often I'm cross-posting those to Instagram and Facebook, so you'll see those links come up if you're on those two uh, channels. Awesome. I do also have an email uh, listserv that I'll send out once a month updates to um, which I'll include um, relevant information I often do uh, recipes mainly for chicken <laughs> and um, also the how-to videos so a lot of people buy baby chicks and started pullets from me and they might be their first time having chickens or um, they've only had them for a few years so they're looking for information about um, different chicken equipment, like I roll out nest boxes and different things, and so I often do little tutorials on those things and put those in the emails. Well, I always ask everybody that I interview what their favorite dish is with something that they've raised. So what is your favorite thing to make with your products? Uh, you know, I just made a, a egg custard oh, wow. <laughs> with squash I grew in my garden. Um, Whoa. Probably something with garlic. You know, the reason I started raising garlic is uh, I love garlic. And if a recipe calls for two cloves, I put an eight. Like, just, <laughs> like, I love garlic. And also, it's a good crop for Wyoming. It's a root crop. It, it, it's, um, uh, it doesn't like the heat. It likes the cold. I have hard neck varieties. Uh, so definitely anything that has um, garlic in it. And one of my favorite ways to prepare chicken, because I do packaged whole chicken, is to crock pot it all um just put it in a crock pot with water salt and pepper and it's not because it's a tough old chicken you know tough old bird that needs to be uh simmered for a long time it's because it's easy and i can leave it for a few hours and then come back to it and it's cooked and then just shred the, the chicken meat off the carcass and i pretty much lived on that all summer because then i throw it onto a salad as a, a chicken salad and just didn't have to heat up the kitchen with the oven like just you know, I was busy running around, and so I do a lot of crock potting of chicken. And your chickens will actually fit in a crock pot, unlike yes. some of the. <laughs> that is actually one of the things a lot of my customers tell me that they like. So most of the broiler hybrids, um, they get really big, you know, five to six pounds, and that's a very nice centerpiece Thanksgiving chicken. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't fit in most people's crock pot or their instapots. And the heritage roosters, the average, they're about four pounds dress weight and so they fit in a large crock pot they're more manageable you're not eating chicken for weeks <laughs> <laughs> uh, and 
that's a lot what people like. Um, and that is also very different for them because most chicken in a regular grocery store is a broiler. It's, um, you know, a lot of the, uh, the breasts on it are very large. And when people see my chicken, it's a, a very different product. And that has enabled me, I'm able to talk about my heritage breeds and, you know, these were roosters. Uh, and that brings in that, now it brings in, you know, not only my story of a hatchery, but also getting people to think about their food system more of, oh, you know, this white meat in a styrofoam carton, like it's, there's more to that than me just buying at the store. There's a whole chicken behind it and then there's farmers and then there's maybe like a really big, you know, defined animal feeding operation or it's, you know, there's plenty of people that do broilers on pasture, which is also great. And um, just getting them thinking about it a little bit more and about their community and where their food is being sourced is, I think, um, in some ways, the, the conversation starter of looking at my smaller chickens and being like, it's not a broiler. Let me tell you what it is. Yeah. <laughs> you know, three and a half pounds. And that's where a lot of what I do at a farmer's market is engage people in conversation about, um, you know, the chicken meat and what I do and thinking about food and most of the time if there's a person at a farmer's market they're already interested in local food mm-hmm. so they're a great audience they want to know uh, people who don't want to know are the, the folks I'd love to start talking with more often because uh, they're not at the farmer's market and how do you go um, connect with them I think it's important mm-hmm. uh, and one thing I am doing in two weeks and I sure hope it's not snowing <laughs> is I'm hosting uh, the Lander Chamber of Commerce out here at my place. Uh, I just became a member of the chamber. Awesome. And uh, I'm hosting their business after hours. And generally, that is one of the businesses on Main Street where you show up wearing a suit and tie and dress like that. It's the suit and tie wearers of Lander that go to these things. Um, but I'll be hosting them out here, and they have been told to wear farm-appropriate footwear. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm hoping to get a... a more people around Lander, not only aware of my chickens and what me and what I'm doing, but also thinking about other, um, how to eat local foods here. So there are, we're serving our d'oeuvres and, and I've um, talked to a bunch of other folks about um, bringing in what they eat. So there's a, a lady with a goat dairy, she's making me a, a chev. Um, and then there's a Margaret down the road who grows potatoes. We're bringing in her potatoes in a dish. And then uh, a local baker is going to do the baguettes. Uh, and then what else? We have some uh, some local apples. And they're all going to come. I've invited all those producers to come and wow. talk about their food and introduce our, our hors d'oeuvres. And so um, my goal was, yes, it's great to do, you know, promote my myself. But I also wanted to, people coming and the draw is baby chicks. That was like, hey, come see the baby chicks. <laughs> and then, because I'm hatching right now, um, but then also getting people like, oh, Margaret has potatoes. Oh, cool. You know, oh, there's a goat. We have a goat dairy. Actually, there's multiple goat dairies in Lander, but uh, Cindy will be coming and they can meet her. And so I think uh, it'll be a great opportunity to get some people that perhaps have not thought about local foods before. Yeah, it sounds like a VIP package to me. Yeah, yeah. Uh, hopefully they uh, don't get stuck in the mud on my driveway. I've had quite a pothole for me, and I've started to look at it going, this could be not very good. Uh, That's um, when your Knowles training will come in strong. Yeah, yeah, and we'll go pull them out. We're like, this is the real Wyoming experience.
thank you for your time. It's I really appreciate it. I had a really good time talking with you. Thank you so much for listening to my interview of Melissa Hempkin of Melissa Hoff Farm in Lander. I hope you were inspired to take part in your local food system in any way you can. Just like Melissa has, it's pretty incredible what she's done and how far she's come in such a short time and her contributions through Central Wyoming College and through Eat Wyoming and beyond. If you're interested in purchasing any of Melissa's products that she talks about in this podcast, you can find her at melissahoff.com. That's H-O-F in case you didn't catch that. Um, But you can also find her products on Eat Wyoming. And she is on Facebook and Instagram as Melissa Hoff Farm. If you're interested in trying out some of these heritage breed roosters, we'll have some ready in September of this year. And we've sold about half of them so far. So we've got half of them still available on our website. Uh, Keep in mind, you can place your deposit for bulk meats with us for two more weeks. Um, If you place your deposit by April 15th, you get five extra entries into our Meet Your Rancher giveaway. Uh, But if you place your deposit by May 1st, you will guarantee yourself some of our meats. And those include chickens lamb pork and beef so don't waste any time it's coming right up Uh, place your deposit on our website at tasteofthewind.com join us next time on the taste of the wind podcast for more tidbits on ethical and local food in the west thanks